FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther, is up next. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fifth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about republic versus democracy and why should we care? In the context of different policy debates like ranked choice voting, electoral college reform, citizen initiatives, etc., we increasingly hear people say, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. What do people mean when they say that? Is there a particular subtext implicating minority rights, even minority rule, and possibly states' rights and federalism? What's the understanding of people who use that phrase, we're not a democracy, we're a republic? We're going to explore that with our guest this morning. We don't have a phone line open today, but we'll be taking your questions during the second half of the show by email. So stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today. Before I introduce our guests, let me remind our listeners that it's Pledge Week at WERU. We have a a generous matching grant uh, for public affairs programming this week. So if you call 800-643-6273 during public affairs programming, the Democracy Forum is one, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar, doubling the impact of your gift during public affairs programming in support of this great show. In addition, we have a book drawing. Everyone who calls in during a public affairs program this week will be entered into a drawing that's going to happen at 4 o'clock this afternoon. And the book is Burt Newborn's Madison's Music on Reading the First Amendment. Uh, Newborn is one of the nation's foremost civil liberties lawyers and uh, was a guest on the Democracy Forum in February when we did a show on um, the importance of free press and a democracy. So again, that's 800-643-6273 to make a pledge or to enter the book drawing. Remember, you don't have to pledge to enter the drawing. Just call and say you want to be in the drawing, and we'll put your name in the watering can for that. Uh, so with that, um, let me introduce our guests. Joining us on the phone today is Lance Dutson. Lance is the principal in the firm Red Hill Strategies. He's a Republican communications consultant. He has served on the campaign teams of U.S. Senators Susan Collins and Kelly Ayotte, as well as the uh, Maine Republican Party. He's a columnist for the Bangor Daily News. Welcome, Lance. So pleased to have you on the show today. Good morning, Ann. Thanks a lot for having me. Also on the phone with us is Joseph Research. Is it Reisert or Reisert, Joseph? I always get mixed up. It's Reisert. Reisert, thank you. Joseph is the Harriet S. Wiswell and George C. Wiswell, Jr., Associate Professor of American Constitutional Law at Colby College. Welcome, Joseph, and thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, from the time we were school children, we learned to recite, I pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. Everyone knows the United States is a republic, Right. But aren't we also a liberal democracy? What really is the difference between a constitutional republic and a liberal democracy? And why do we hear contemporary political commentators on the right echoing Ayn Rand as when Pat Buchanan said, our founding fathers who created this republic did not believe in democracy. When did we come to worship this idol? 
really did not believe in democracy. So, Joseph, let's put it to you first. Give us some basic definitions of what these two words mean, republic and democracy. All right, fair enough. Um, They mean a lot of, let me start etymologically and then talk about how they get used by, say, different um, thinkers in the tradition of of political thought, which I I teach at Colby uh, also. Right, so republic comes from Latin, uh, res publica, the matter of public concern, and that was sort of their word for their uh, commonwealth in effect. And democracy comes from the Greek, uh, demos, right, the body of the people. Uh, the krasi is from the, the verb uh, krateo, uh, to rule, right, so that's ruled by the people. The Athenians, who had a, a sort of extremely participatory, well, for its time, uh, direct democratic system of government called, called their form uh, democracy. So, you know, at some level, republic uh, invokes the sort of Roman Republican system, which was uh, more uh, elite-dominated, had a, a little stronger rule of law, and and the word democracy sort of evokes the Athenian system. But, you know, if you went through the history of political thought, you'll find the terms, um, you know, each thinker is going to have his own definition of exactly what he means, uh, you know, by democracy. So, you know, Somebody like Aristotle is going to define democracy as uh, the rule by the many uh, who are poor, basically. And uh, he classes democracy as a bad form of government because it's the partisan rule of the poor and the interest of the poor, which is to say contrary to the interests of the community as a whole, right? And somebody else, you know, like Rousseau, who we often think of as a kind of democratic thinker, you know, actually says that... Uh, a genuine democracy has never existed because he defines democracy as a form of government in which uh, a majority of the citizens are actually uh, magistrates who, who wield political power. So, you know, the definitions can vary a lot. Uh, maybe I'll just stop there. Well, so, Lance, why don't you weigh in and, I mean, we can talk a little bit about what the founders thought and so forth, but... In the common vernacular, how do you think people are using those words? Well, I think it's um, I think the the phrase or the question, "Are we a republic or a democracy?" is something that's I think being used as a as a relatively dishonest or or incorrect notion to try to discourage certain uh, political movements that are more grassroots based or or more. Um, you know, popular, uh, 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 popular, popular outside the realm of our system of laws. For instance, the um, the debate over the electoral college right now, I think, is a is a great example. Or the the um, discussions that come up after presidential elections when somebody wins the electoral college and somebody else wins the popular vote. There seems to be a, um, especially from the right. Um, this idea that because we are technically a republic, that um, a, as the quote from Pat Buchanan um, that you mentioned earlier says, that for some reason this means that the founders and that our country is not based on some kind of a democratic system, which I feel is a completely absurd notion. I mean, it, it, um, as jo- excuse me, as Joseph mentioned, that the founders were uh, were very uh, very clear that our our 
nation was going to be guided by the will of the people, the democratic will of the people. And the two terms, I, I don't think, historically have ever contradicted each other. They're two different views on the same basic principle, which is we're a, a nation that is governed by the people rather than some kind of aristocracy or some kind of a, of a, of a monarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, the use of this question right now, I think, is... Um, is I think people are confused by it. I mean, we have a structure of government that is, I feel, uniquely and brilliantly created in order to allow for a functioning democracy, meaning we're, we have institutions like the United, the United States Senate, for instance, with staggered terms and, um, and the balance of the three branches of government that, although highly democratic and completely governed by the will of the people, are also constructed structurally to prevent, uh, you know, the direction of the nation from shifting dramatically every two years. So the confusion, I think, on the part of some people when they see, um, you know, a, a grassroots uprising or a populist uprising, to push back against that and say somehow our country is not meant to, to function as a pure democracy, I think is just kind of a, a structural cop-out. Um, it's true that that every time the wind blows, we're not going to automatically take a, a referendum of all the citizens. But ultimately, you know, the people we choose for president pick the judiciary, and the people we choose, um, you know, at a local level, in our towns and in our state legislatures, are going to dictate the policy of what happens over the long term in our communities. And that's a democracy. It's not. There's no dictator. There's no monarch, and um, and even you know with with our constitution, what what I've heard often from the right is, we are a uh, we are a constitutional republic, meaning we have certain democratic principles that function at the at the whim of what's constructed in our constitution. But even our constitution has specific parameters where it can be changed. We have a democratic process to alter the Constitution to whatever we want it to be. We could get rid of the First Amendment tomorrow democratically if we wanted to. So there's no, you know, the idea of, and I think it gets often blurred with the idea, sometime of like a quasi-religious view of what the Constitution of the United States says, that there's this, you know, uh, purpose or kind of a, a golden idol almost of the United States Constitution that we that we um, kind of bow down to, in in the structural sense, it's the governing document. But we're a community of people who have um, democratic structures in place to be able to govern ourselves however we want to. Now, Joseph, I, I, what did the founding fathers really think about this? I mean, I think I'll let you say I, I think they had a fear of direct democracy, and we don't really have that except in the limited context of the citizen initiative um, provisions that like Maine has and a few other states have. But what did the founding fathers think about like direct democracy? And we don't really have direct democracy, right? Well, I mean, there were a lot of different folks at Philadelphia, right? And, and, and lots of different people who were voting to um, ratify the constitution and the state conventions. And so there were a lot of different opinions um, the Federalist Papers are kind of the most single influential document, and we often, you know, look to those uh, as as guidance as to what the founding generation kind of understood. And so, um, you know, Madison in Federalist Ten 
contrast between uh, pure democracy, and I guess I'll just read this here, uh, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person. Uh, and he contrasts those, uh, you know, such democracies, he says, have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention. Uh, and he contrasts that with a republic. And he says uh, that a republic is a government in which the scheme of representation takes place. Uh, and he'll go on to explain that republics will provide much greater security for uh, personal property and liberty. And then in, in Federalist number 39, he gives an extended defense of the Constitution as being republican. Um, you know, although what he says there is pretty consistent with what uh, Lance just said, right? He says, we may define a republic to be a government which derives all its powers directly or indirectly from the great body of the people and is administered by persons holding their offices during pleasure for a limited period or during good behavior. Um, I mean, I do think it's fair to say that you see in the Federalist Papers, you see in some of the other early debates, that the founders understood that the Athenian form of highly participatory democracy, uh, unconstrained really by anything like fundamental rights, unconstrained really by anything like the rule of law, um, produced um, tyranny, political instability, uh, and and was just a, you know, there's a reason that Athens had this brief moment of flowering glory and then um, basically lost it all, right? And, and, and they didn't want to do that. Yeah, well, and I, I think something that you said was kind of interesting because, and I want to ask Lance about this, because sometimes when I hear some of the speakers talk about um, a republic, not a democracy, what I hear them referring to is the tyranny of the majority to um, suppress the minority, either by taking personal property or by constraining their liberty. And sometimes I think that means like social welfare programs and pro progressive taxation, which get implicated if the majority votes for progressive taxation and the majority um, imposes higher taxes on the min minority. Is that a correct in inference from what I'm hearing, do you think, Lance? Well, I think so to some degree. I think it's it's even broader than that. I mean, it, it to take you know to um, to take that side of it for a moment. I think the concern or or the the viewpoint is that we have these um, these explicit liberties that are that are instantiated through the Constitution, and that um, regardless of what the democratic will of the country is, that somehow. Um, you know, the protection of the Constitution is going to keep people from having their property taken away or having their liberties inhibited. And uh, while that's true to, to a certain point, I think it loses sight of really what what is going on here. I mean, we have a community of people who agree. I always try to kind of liken it to like a neighborhood um community or some kind of a club that people belong to. I mean, the, the objective, I think, inarguably, of, of the founding of this nation was to let people to be as free as they possibly can within a functional society. And, um, you know, there are great um, 
uh, levels of debate that can occur on just about anything. And so having a framework that, that lays out the general cultural principles of a society like we have in the Bill of Rights is important. But those things can democratically be changed, and that's why I think the concentration on that, um, you know, from certain political factions at different times is really not a particularly valid argument. I mean, if we had certainly uh, the structure of um, our democracy um, slows down, you know, certain popular changes in mood, but they don't, it doesn't prohibit them. So for instance, if all of a sudden we decided that we didn't really care about the second amendment or the first amendment, there's a democratic process for us to change those things. So there's no inherent, you know, despite the phrasing, I think of the, of the time frame of the founding and the, the, the authoring of the constitution, there's, we are, a. a you know, close to a pure democracy, although it's not everybody voting on everything every time, there are democratic processes in place to change what those cultural um, tenets are that are, you know, basically instantiated through the, through the Bill of Rights right now. So I don't think it's a more, it's a deeper, um, a deeper thought than it is just a rhetorical device as a way to to justify an opinion at a particular time that happens to be in the minority. I think we see it really, really uh, prominent within the, um, the Second Amendment debate and within gun rights um, debates because, you know, especially the way, you know, the Heller case was determined in, in the way that um, people talk generally about the, the, the limitations or, or lack of limitations on, on the right to bear arms. Um, the thing that is is ever present in reality that doesn't get talked about much is that regardless of what's said in that we have a process to change it i'm going to just take a quick station break here lance and then i want to ask you to explain what the heller case was and then i want to go back to joseph and and ask him um something about this too so just let me take a little break here you're tuned to the democracy forum on weru this is ann luther from the league of women voters of maine our topic today is republic versus democracy why should we care our guests this morning are Lance Stutson, a Republican communications consultant and columnist for the Bangor Daily News, and Joseph Reisert, associate professor of American constitutional law at Colby College. And Lance was just talking about um, personal liberty, constitutional rights, and um, in the context of the gun rights debate, and you mentioned the Heller case. And so just explain to our listeners what that was, Lance. Sure. It was a, a case of the District of Columbia versus Heller that that basically laid out um, that the Second Amendment's not unlimited. And um, uh, Justice Scalia, a very conservative um, Supreme Court justice, wrote the opinion that, um, that the Second Amendment isn't unlimited. And I think that, you know, in discussion of, um, of the general concept of the Second Amendment, it's, a, I think, a very important waypoint from you know, the founding into modern times of what what even, you know, total constructionist or conservative uh, legal thinkers understand about the relationship of the, you know, original documents to how we live right now. And it's the fact that there is a, there are limitations on the Second Amendment and that there, that, 
that states or municipalities have the ability to put some limitations on there. Um, it, it, I think it makes it clear, in my mind anyway, as a, someone who considers himself a conservative, that this notion of um, you know the Constitution as if it were written on stone tablets, um, that's not the way even very prominent conservative thinkers think about the Constitution. It is, you know, we, we often hear this, um, uh, you know, joking debate about Democrats considering the Constitution a living document and conservatives thinking that it's, that it's not. But, I mean, the Constitution itself describes itself, you know, through its structural processes as a living document. There are processes that the Constitution outlays to change itself. So, Joseph, um, I mean, is this argument republic versus democracy, is this like as old as the republic, if I may use the term? Um, I mean, in a way, I, I, you know, I sort of agree with Lance that, you know, when folks uh, point, point to the phrase, you know, it's a republic, not a democracy, um, you know, that, that that's a way, in effect, of, um, you know, trying to win an argument uh, as a way of trying to say, um, you know, in this context, maybe majority voting is not the best decision rule. You know, and there actually are a lot of contexts in which majority voting is a bad decision rule. And there are a lot of contexts in which all of us are better off, um, you know, by the fact that there are, you know, restraints on what, you know, the majority can do right this very minute. And so to the extent that there's something real going on when when people are arguing democracy or republic, I kind of think that's it, right? And we should really be thinking about it. Is this is this the kind of thing um, for which majority, you know, one vote majority decision right now, is that the wise decision rule here? Or are we all going to be better off under a different decision rule? understanding, right, that we live in a world in which ultimately, you know, everything is eventually answerable to, responsive to, in some way, popular sentiment. Although, you know, I mean, the Constitution can be changed, but an Article 5 amendment is very hard to bring about. It's not, you know, let's have a national referendum. And and it and, requires a supermajority on top of that. But, I mean, I sometimes I'm here in the context of this debate, just sort of little um, wisps of thinking out there that people want to roll back popular election of U.S. senators in the context of this conversation. We're not a, not a democracy. Um, it, so, I mean, does the, is that an example of where the majority rule may or may not be a good decision rule, Joseph? Uh, so, I mean, the argument for getting rid of direct election of senators was something like, um, you know, under the old scheme, the, the Senate in effect represented, or at least the theory was, that it represents the states in their, you know, capacity, because the state, legislator, uh, state legislatures elected the senators. And the theory was that that was a kind of structural protection uh, for states' rights. And, you know, that Certainly in the, the modern world, the, the federal government uh, looms so much larger over the states that folks who'd like to see more independent authority in the states have, have occasionally floated this idea of uh, undoing the 
17th Amendment, which brings about the direct election of senators. Um, you know, I think there's some good empirical work on this that actually suggests that what was happening in the period immediately before the 17th Amendment is that national issues were actually beginning to swamp state issues. And so the you know, election to the state legislature is really a proxy election for the Senate. And, you know, I think in the present terms, that's clearly what would happen. So, I mean, I don't think what people who say they want to repeal the direct election of senators, like, I don't think doing it would accomplish what they want. I mean, but it's it, it's interesting that this, this conversation has both to do with majority rule and or and with states' rights. You know, when people use this republic, not a democracy, they're invoking both of those things. And I, I think you've both sort of talked about the limitations of direct democracy, you know, direct popular election of everything, where um, everybody votes on every piece of legislation. I, I think we can all see that that would be a little chaotic. On the other hand, you know, so we can see where, you know, direct democracy could possibly go wrong. But there must also be ways in which a Republican form of government can go wrong. And, uh, um, you know, the citizen initiative reforms and some others out of the progressive era rose up because the strict Republican form of government was not really working for people. So how can republics go wrong? If we can see clearly how direct democracy can go wrong, how can republics go wrong? Well, I think that, that, you know, we're kind of living through part of that to a certain degree right now. I mean, I think if the, if the bounds of the structure slow things down to such a point where corruption can fester, then I think you could say that that would be a point of criticism for a form of government that isn't a direct democracy. You know, for instance, it, we have debates over term limits and things like that and campaign finance and so forth. There are, I think, fairly... Um, viable arguments to be made that where we are right now um, in terms of our representative democracy is too too impacted by people with a lot of money, uh, for instance, or giant corporations or whatever. I think that's a, a pretty regular conversation we're having right now about the limitations of the republic. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I kind of feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but the the passage of time and the change of culture and change of technologies and, and so forth, change of belief systems, change of the size of the country, I think at some level we're all anticipated by the founders in that, you know, we can change all those things. If for some reason the, the majority of, of folks in this country or the strong supermajority of folks in this country believe that the way we do things is too slow and too unresponsive to the will of the people, there are processes they can go through to make those changes is very rare and it, chances are it won't happen anytime soon but the, there's a, a, a path toward doing that if it became you know enough of a, a consensus concern for for um, for the people of this country um, so I, I often hear people talk about our let's say Republican form of government the constitutional the checks and balances um, in the U.S. now having, like, too many veto points. There are too many ways that um, legislation can be stopped, you know, both in the rules that govern uh, 
the Congress and in the vetoes and with the Supreme Court. I mean, so many ways to make nothing happen. Um, is that, Joseph, one of the ways in which republics can fail by stalemate? I mean, sure. <laughs> there are lots of ways, you know, any system can fail, right? And, and they all require, um, you know, a sense of shared commitment to the kind of ongoing operation of the system uh, on behalf of a, a vast majority of the participants in it. Um, you know, I think that our system was clearly designed to make legislation difficult. Right, the theory of bicameralism, uh, you know, especially with the very different uh, electoral bases for the two houses in Congress, it was really designed to make the default, you know, no action. And it's only when something seems clearly required and clearly required to uh, majorities of representatives elected at different times in different ways that you're supposed to get uh, action. I mean, I guess the the danger of inaction, that becomes a danger, particularly when you have, you know, really large, say, majorities of ordinary citizens who, if most people look at what's going on in Washington and say, you know what, this is fine, Uh, we actually like a system in which things change very slowly, and that would be one thing. I think that the danger in the present moment is, there seems to be a pretty widespread expectation, you know, among ordinary voters that that the Congress ought to be more responsive, that there ought to be more legislation. Um, you know, and that mismatch between what people seem to want out of their government and what it's kind of institutionally well-designed to do, I think that is a problem. Um, so, so I want to, um, I'm going to take another little break here, but when I come back, I want to ask you both whether to this point, whether when people say we're a republic, not a democracy, do they say that because they don't want anything to change? They don't want reform. They like it just the way it is. So just ponder that for a second while I take a little station break. At this point, um, I'm going to ask listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine, and our guests this morning are Lance Dutson, a Republican communications consultant and a columnist for the Bangor Daily News, and Joseph Reisert, Associate Professor of American Constitutional Law at Colby College. Our topic today is Republic versus Democracy. Why should we care? If you have a comment or question, you can join our conversation by emailing us at downeast at lwvme.org. Put Democracy Forum in the subject line and we'll read your question on the air. Don't wait till the last minute. Get your question in early. That's downeast at lwvme.org. And while we're on a station break here, let me remind our listeners that it's uh, Pledge Drive Week at WERU. We're um, graced with a generous matching pledge program for public affairs programming this week. So if you call during this public affairs hour, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. That's 800-643-6273 to get your pledge in and have it matched. In addition, we have a book drawing at 4 p.m. today. If you call during this hour, you can have your name put into the book drawing for Madison's Music on Reading the First Amendment by Burt Newborn. 
Uh, Bert was a guest on the Democracy Forum on WERU in February, and you can listen to that show at our Public Affairs Archive at WERU.org. Again, that number is 800-643-6273. Okay, so back to the question. Is um, no change the reason why people say we're a republic, not a democracy? What do you think, Joseph? Um, Sure. I guess I'll agree with that. You know, that it's, again, just saying, and maybe it's an effort to persuade, maybe not a very effective effort, I don't know, but to persuade people to kind of stick with the status quo. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Lance? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that I think that there's this idea or this notion that there was one time in history where everything was great in America, and, you know, I, I think that tends to be more of a conservative um, perspective. I do think that's the motivation, and I, I disagree with it wholeheartedly. I mean, it's interesting because the 2016 election was widely considered a populist moment. You know, populism kind of goes with democracy, but at the same time, the 2016 election favored the Republican Party, which is the one that's saying we're a republic, not a democracy. Lance, what do you make of that irony? Yeah, you know, it's it's confusing. The term populism, I, I think, I mean, I would agree with you generally that that's what it seemed like. The thing that I struggle with in that phrase is what were, what were the notions that were being pushed, you know, what were the populist concepts that were being pushed through the 2016 election? And I'm not really sure they're anything more than a reaction to kind of a strongman, charismatic figure, Um you know, there the but I do think that it relates to your previous question about going back to um, you know some time where America was great, right? Making it great again. Um, you know, I think it's an it's a, a make believe uh, concept to think that there was ever ever a time first in this country that wasn't completely full of tumult. And when you start talking about going back in time to when America was great you're signaling that the advances in our culture, you know, civil rights, gender equality, same-sex marriage, and so forth, you know, are things that are bad that occurred to this country. So, you know, I I think if, you know, from a certain perspective, if the founders looked at the, you know, sometimes slow but positive evolution of, of you know, civil rights in particular and liberties in this country, I think they would think that their system probably worked a little bit better than they thought it would. We've come an, an awful long way. And the idea of reverting back, you know, even 20 or 30 years at this point to some time where somebody thinks maybe it was better, um, that's, I think, contrary to the entire purpose of our constitutional democracy. What do you make of that irony, Joseph, about populism and republicanism and um, democracy and direct democracy? Um, So it is interesting that, you know, Trump, President, now President Trump, um, won the nomination basically um, because the nomination process is much more democratic than it once was. Um, You know, that if the Republican party elites had got to pick their candidate, you know, let's say in some hypothetical smoke-filled room, um, they would never have picked Donald Trump and probably would have been, you know, the last guy on that whole list of candidates uh, or darn near it. And, you know, so his 
his election is populist in the sense that he he was able to parlay plurality wins in a number of um, you know primary elections, and we had some uh, you know voting al- or delegate allegation rules uh, where those plurality wins translated into solid delegate numbers, right? And he was able to put together. Um, enough votes to win the nomination at the convention because, you know, he had, he got support from rank and file Republicans, though not from the the party elite by and large. So, you know, there's that, and then it is kind of funny, right, that that this notionally populist figure is actually um, wins because of the structure of the electoral college and 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 did not receive an absolute majority of votes cast. Right, or even a plurality of votes cast. Well, and that's one of the key issues. You know, the League of Women Voters um, supports some democracy reforms, and our Facebook page gets inundated with this. You know, you can't do that. We're a republic, not a democracy. So, um, you know, some of these electoral reforms are the ones that seem to raise this question up um, most passionately. Well, but, you know, it does come to the question, you know, I mean, I will say sort of in defense of the Electoral College here, um, you know, whenever you have a kind of indirect way of counting, you know, think of the way football games are scored, right? Periodically, your team loses, even though it put up more total yards than the team that won, but the team that won put up the yards in a way that got them points. Right. And, you know, whenever you say, yeah, but my team got more yards, you know, you're kind of just whining. And, you know, well, what, we I, don't, what we don't know, just to finish this thought, yeah, yeah. is had both candidates been trying to maximize the popular vote, what the outcome would have been. I totally I agree. I'm not supposed to editorialize, but I think the idea that, um, you know, electoral college reform, if we had had that, would have changed the outcome of the election. That's purely supposition, isn't it? I mean, the, both candidates would have played the game differently, and who knows what would have happened. You know, right. I mean, it's, you know, a kind of historical counterfactual that we really can't have a, a certain knowledge about. But, you know, so then I think it's a fair question, though. Would, you know, would majority popular vote be a better decision role for the president or not? I mean, you know, I think, and what makes that question kind of hard to answer is that you really would then need to think about, okay, what does that do to the structure of elections, the administration of elections? Um, you know, would we be comfortable having a national popular vote election conducted in the very kind of um, locally administered way we do it now? I mean, just to throw this in, I had, was teaching a seminar this spring in which the students in the seminar wrote a new constitution. Uh, and they were all very much in favor of direct popular vote, but they came pretty quickly to the idea that there had to be a kind of, you know, national administration of federal elections to kind of, you know, make sure that that everything was conducted uniformly. Um, and, you know, that's certainly one possible way to go. Um, it's it's not. It would be a, a big change from the kind of federal and decentralized way we do it now. Yeah, though. I don't want to take this conversation down a path of arguing about electoral college reform is you know stick to the
desktop level, but um, let me just remind listeners, if you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by emailing us at downeast at lwvme.org. Put democracy form in the subject line, and we'll read your question on the air. Lance, why do you think this question, I I mean, when we started researching this, we saw, um, you know, historical references to this question, democracy versus republic, republic versus democracy, going back to Ayn Rand and, you know, a generation ago. But it's kind of simmered sort of below the radar this whole time until, like, now, all of a sudden, I see that argument being made everywhere. Why do you think it's bubbled to the surface right now? Well, that's a good question. I don't really know, other than um, some of the, I think, the subject matter that's being talked about right now that, you know, for instance, universal health care, Medicare for all, things like that, um, there are these concepts now that are bubbling up that people are finding out that actually a lot more people support than our than their political success would indicate. And, um, you know, I think that, that that's probably a, a, a reason for it. But I think it's, it's you know, the, for, for quite some time, the biggest tension point between the right and the left um, in this country has been this progressive move forward or, um, or this conservative, you know, uh, stand still or go back. And I, I can't remember verbatim what it was, but the National Review, the kind of, you know, um, empirical conservative publication for a long time, their their motto was something like, you know, standing athwart history and, and screaming stop. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, when change happens in a culture, it generally happens, at least in, in our society, from, from the grassroots up. And I, I imagine that any call to say, you know, we are a republic that's based on these firm you know, uh, cast in stone um, concepts, you know, rather than a uh, you know a populist democracy, that is an indication of that tension between people who want to change the way our society functions and those who want to to either go back or keep it the same way it is right now. So, um, I mean, that takes me back to thinking about Social Security and it, like um, the examples you raised. Uh, maybe about the Affordable Care Act and universal health care. I mean, is this something that people look at as a taking of private property and giving to somebody else like a redistribution of wealth? Is that the element that they object to? Well, I think partially. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the and especially the tensions that have come up now that we've got you know, a more open discussion of the concept of socialism than than we've had in, you know, 50 or 75 years in this country. I do definitely think that is a major point of tension. Um, But I also think there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, I don't know what to to call it, cultural or or moral um, disagreement um, or, or, or fissures in our in our culture right now, you know, for instance, even just basic issues of of civil rights or you know race relations and um, and things like that, or you know issues of gender equality, all those things right now are at a more heightened point than they should be historically, and I think a lot of that has to do with this, you know, maybe that's the root of the populism that Trump um, harnessed that there's a that there's a you know a third 
a strong third of our nation that doesn't agree with the the social progress that we've made and um you know the having the ability to to say things out loud that it's been you know socially imprudent to say for several decades i mean all of that has come together in kind of a strange perfect storm but i think that's why it's part of the reason this topic is so is so dangerous you know what we see a, a lot in you know the white nationalist movement and and things like that where there's this you know hearkening back to a better day that you know tries to evoke feelings of nostalgia but that are really cloaked uh, efforts to sell the idea that social progress and equal rights as you know, ironically instantiated through the Constitution by our founders, that that's not something that we should continue to try to improve on and and expand. Um, and I, that's why I think the discussion of of republic versus democracy and all these type of things is, you know, is frankly kind of dangerous. Mm-hmm. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Lance Dutson, a Republican communication consultant and a columnist for the Bangor Daily News, and Joseph Reisert, Associate Professor of American Constitutional Law at Colby College. We're talking about republic versus democracy and why should we care. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation in these last few minutes by emailing us at downeast at lwvme.org. Put Democracy Forum in the subject line, and we'll read your question on the air. Um, so, jo- Joseph, do you think these two concepts, republic versus democracy, like is it one or the other? Is it really mutually exclusive? Or No, and, and you know, I think that was, that was the point we sort of started with, that, that you know, a republic is a form of government that at bottom is, is, is grounded on popular consent. Right. And in a sort of rough and ready way, a democratic system is one based on popular consent. Um, You know, I think, you know, that said, the design and operation of the institutions of government is very complicated and difficult. And, you know, there will be many times in which we all ought to give popular consent to institutional arrangements that themselves use other decision rules, right? Um, You know, defending, you know, it's unpopular that sort of, um, you know, to defend certain kinds of criminal defendants, right? Uh, Harvey Weinstein, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was a Harvard law professor who was going to defend him and the the students in the dorm uh, he was uh, resident dean of, you know, were outraged that he should defend somebody. And yet, look, in our system, if people are going to have a fair shot in the criminal justice system, everybody needs to get a defense. And it may, in particular cases, be unpopular that this or that person be defended, and yet we all ought to be able to stand back, take a deep breath, and recognize, yeah, we want to have a system in which even the unpopular people get trials that are procedurally fair um, and that, you know, get decided, you know, and even in a jury trial, it takes unanimous vote to convict, um, you know, which is a different decision rule than majority rule. So, Lance, when people use this republic versus democracy, 
how do they think it's going to help them win arguments or advantage them? And I mean, it's, you know, you can see an easy linkage between Republicans think we're a republic and Democrats think we're a democracy, but that's not really what's going on here, is it? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's a, you know, most political dialogue surrounds the idea of what people want the most, you know, in a democracy. And, you know, when you find yourself on the wrong side of that, I think that's when rhetorically it's easier to go back to things like, like this discussion that we're having about, you know, whether the Constitution or, or, you know, or a constitutional republic that disregards the popular will of the people. I don't think it's a particularly strong argument for anything. Um, But I think that's probably why why it goes there. Um, and you'll see, I mean, Republicans and Democrats, I think, have both been on opposite sides of, of these types of discussion. I mean, when a, when a Democrat is on the wrong side, you know, not to bring the Electoral College into it again, but that's, I think, a good example. You know, people love the Electoral College when it helps them win, and they hate it when it, when it prevents them from winning. And I, I just think it's, you know, a type of rhetorical device like that. What do you think Pat Buchanan meant when he said that? I mean, you, uh, you probably didn't research where the quote came from, but just put, try to put yourself in his. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't like to put myself in his shoes on just about anything. I, <laughs> I think, um, you know, he's got a particularly perverse view about the nation and what what our constitutional freedoms are all about. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I can only think by his previous, you know, uh, oeuvre of work that he was using that to discount socially progressive or social changes that have emerged, you know, in the in the most recent decades. Here, I, I would guess that that's that's the case. And you know, anytime a, a figure, a public figure, is standing against a populist tide, you know, it's it's depending on how rapid it is. I mean, people, society is wrong about things all the time, you know, particularly in the, you know, the earlier part of the 20th century, especially on race issues. But, um, but in general, when someone is faced with, you know, the onslaught of popular opinion, then there are, uh, you know, there's a pretty easy pathway toward them to looking at structural ways to, to bolster their argument and convince people that that they're right. Um, and so, I suppose that there's safe ways to use it and there's unsafe ways to use it, but I think that's probably where he was. So, Joseph, I mean, do you, is it too strong to say that people in Pat Buchanan's um, line of thinking feel that the majority rule is a tyranny of sorts over the rights of the majority with some of these social welfare programs? Is that the intellectual strand? He's grasping. I mean, look, there there are certainly some, you know, principled libertarians who believe that. Um, you know, once upon a time, that was a pretty common view, and the, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, from about 1890 until about 1937, was very was pretty aggressive in its protection of uh, of property rights. Um, and you know, I mean, I. It does seem like if you're trying to persuade people to adopt your view, you should actually state what your view is and give them reasons why they ought to adopt it and not kind of, you know, fall back on, oh, well, we're a republic, not a democracy. Um, 
you know, you need to at least explain, well, why is this the kind of issue on which a popular majority, you know, should not vote? Um, you know, and, and I mean, you see these debates all the time. I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, but, you know, look at the folks who were on the Remain side of Brexit, who all were kind of indignant that, you know, there was this democratic procedure used mm-hmm. um, that reached the wrong outcome. And, I mean, in their view. And, you know, the, again, I'd like to come back to the thought that there are plenty of times when, you know, a, a simple referendum is probably not the best decision procedure to produce outcomes that we'll all be happy living with. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of our hour here, and I want to give you each uh, a couple minutes to summarize your thoughts on this topic. So let me turn to you first, Lance. What um, parting thoughts would you like to share with us before we sign off? Well, I think this has been a really interesting discussion, and you know, I think the 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 most important takeaway that I have from the debate over republic versus democracy is is that I think it's very easy to lose track sometimes of the of the constant transformation our constitutional republic has been in since the beginning. You know, so many of these things that were outlined in the founding documents were the result of compromise. They weren't always first choices on things. For instance, you know, the United States Senate's breakdown and so forth, but that we have a an evolving community of folks that come to compromise about the best way for society to move forward. And I think it's a dangerous thing to look at anything, whether it's a political leader or a constitution, and think of it as some kind of preordained, you know, carved in stone type type of truth. We're an evolving society. We've changed an awful lot in the last 10 years. We've changed an awful lot in the last 200 years. And the way we function as a society together is going to change as well. So I think it's productive to remind ourselves that we are a democratic society and that our government is going to reflect who we are as a culture more than anything else. Joseph, give you a couple minutes to summarize. You've probably got a lot to say, but um, we've got a couple minutes. Go ahead. Uh, sure. So, I mean, you know, first of all, I would I would second pretty much everything Lance just said, right, that um, – you, you want to have a constitutional form of government that's ultimately reflective of who the people are and who the people are today, very different than who the people were, you know, especially the politically active subset were in 1787. Um, you know, that said, I do think it's worth, uh, it would be good for people to appreciate how, how often uh, we're generally well served to allow ourselves to be ruled by this kind of indirect system. Uh, in which, you know, we vote for legislators who make decisions. We allow the courts to kind of sort out issues of fundamental principle, even when the issues they decide, they decide in a way that's very unpopular. I mean, most of the expansion of the rights of the criminally accused during the 1960s by the Supreme Court was super unpopular. Uh, and yet, I think with hindsight, we say, well, it actually did make sense and was, was beneficial. So, um you know, part of living in a constitutional republic is having the, I guess I'll say maturity as citizens to understand that, you know, sometimes our immediate preferences should not be acted upon so long as 
you know, over the long haul, the system is operating to our benefit and the benefit of, you know, the vast majority. So are we a republic or a democracy, Joseph? Both. Lance? I would totally agree, both. All right. We're um, coming to the end of the show. This was a really great conversation. Thank you both for um, participating today. We are um, not quite but almost out of time. So thank you to our guests this morning, Lance Dutson, a Republican communications consultant and a columnist for the Bangor Daily News, and Joseph Reisert, Associate Professor of American Constitutional Law at Colby College. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer here at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in the series. You can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. We'll see you here next month when our topic is going to be slow democracy, town meeting, and how to take it local. See you then. All right, and there's just a few minutes left to get in on that matching pledge for public affairs. This week, this is our last local public affairs block. We'll have a drawing at 4 o'clock for a book that we'll be giving away, which Anne has been mentioning throughout her show when her previous guests had written. And also, you get your pledge doubled. So call 1-800-643-6273 right now or 469-6600 and make a pledge in support of Democracy Forum and all of the other great local, national, and international public affairs programming you get here on WERU. Thank you. WERU strong.